How do pediatric intensive care doctors make the critical decisions needed to save lives of their critically ill children? You are listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on children's health. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and joining me today is Dr. Joseph Brito. Trained as a pediatric intensive care physician, Dr. Brito is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Isabel Healthcare. He has published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers and lectured extensively about pediatric critical care, life-threatening infections, diagnostic errors, and diagnosis decision support. Dr. Brito, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for that very magnanimous introduction. Can you describe for us some of the either daily or challenging situations that a critical care pediatrician encounters when coming to make a diagnosis? When children are on an intensive care unit or admitted to an intensive care unit, there's very little room for error. The predicted mortality overall is somewhere in the 90s. Another way of putting it is about 1 in 10 children that enter an intensive care unit sadly don't make it. So there's conditions of high stress, high uncertainty, much like, for example, in, in ER. And whilst the primary purpose of an intensivist is to support every body system, the heart, the lungs, the kidney, what you're trying to do concurrently while supporting the different body systems is also trying to figure out what's going on here, what has caused all this. While supporting it is important, you also have to start treating the cause. So that's where diagnosis comes in. And it's particularly challenging in intensive care, as I said, because there are so much of data by now. You know, if the patients come through the family practitioner, perhaps come through ER, come through the wards, but it's now in intensive care. There's a lot of data there, which is useful, but things are moving very, very quickly, and there's very little room for error. And some of that data can be incorrect. I mean, sometimes there's this thing called the lore of the chart. You know, whatever the emergency room physician puts down kind of sometimes gets accepted as gospel when it's not correct. Well, Larry, you're right. And, you know, Oscar Wilde said, experience is the name we give to our mistakes. And we've all made that mistake. And therefore, not just in intensive care, but in medicine at large, it's very useful to remind yourself and question everything that you see. Question the data, ask questions again, look at it from different points of view, uh, re-examine it, and not to quickly take as gospel what's been handed to you. And that's also one of the common reasons why we make cognitive diagnosis error mistakes. We don't question, especially when new data comes in, we don't reevaluate and ask ourselves again, could this be something else? How does a doctor know, Joseph, when their diagnosis is correct? I mean, they may think, oh, I've made the right diagnosis, it fits, it makes sense, but could be completely wrong. You know, Larry, Chuck Friedman is currently at the NIH he published a study in 2005 which looked at that very issue that you raised, the alignment between a physician's confidence in the diagnosis and the correctness of the diagnosis. So he looked at the alignment between the two. And what he found overall was that the alignment was, to use his phrase, overall mild. In such situations, you look at the kappa value, and ideally you'd like the kappa value to be one, meaning we're confident when we're correct. He found in his study that the kappa value was actually quite low. It was between 0.2 to 0.4 rather than being 1. And he found that overall medical students, residents, and faculty in about 10 to 15% of cases were confident that they had made the correct diagnosis. Confidence, as you know, is a subjective feeling. So the subjective feeling was that they were correct in about 10 to 15% of cases. But objectively, it transpired that they were wrong. That's something to be factored in for those of us involved in diagnosis decision-making and diagnosis decision support systems, that you cannot rely exclusively on a physician's confidence. 
If you rely purely on my confidence as a physician in this diagnosis, whether I go out and use a diagnosis decision support system, we won't be getting it right as often as we'd like to. Well then, Joseph, do we seek a higher power? Do we ask the nurses? Do we turn on our computer? It's an eclectic approach. It's perhaps all of the above. (laughs) And, you know, Larry, nurses are very, very good at taking histories and meticulously examining patients. I remember this aphorism that one of my professors in medical school told us. If you want something to be done properly, get a nurse to do it. So nurses are very, very meticulous. But when nurses, perhaps in the past, but that's changing now, haven't been trained to systematically do is pattern recognition, is putting together the clinical features, fever, headache, vomiting, photophobia, loss of consciousness. What am I dealing with here? Nurses haven't been trained to do that. And although we as physicians have been trained to do that, to construct a complete differential diagnosis, you know, not to forget any of the likely suspects, for various reasons, pressure of time, other system reasons, whenever studies have been done, we don't do it as consistently well as we should. There is a significant burden, if you like, of diagnosis error. So so the short answer to your question is I think the time has come. As we now begin to measure diagnosis error, the time has now come for us to think in terms of how can we mitigate it? How can we use systems to help us make better quality diagnosis decisions? If you've just joined us, you're listening to Children's Health Month on ReachMD, Channel 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. I'm talking today with Dr. Joseph Brito, pediatric intensive care physician and chief executive officer and co-founder of Isabel Healthcare. I think it's time to ask, Joseph, what's Isabel? Larry, Isabel is named after a little girl, Isabel Maud. In 1999, she was three and a half years old, and she presented initially to her family physicians on the fifth day of chickenpox. And as you know, Larry, chickenpox in the vast majority of children and vast majority of patients is a relatively benign, albeit troublesome childhood infection. Isabel, sadly, on the fifth day, rather than recovering from her chickenpox, you know, developed a complication. She developed necrotizing fasciitis, what the press quite graphically calls the flesh-eating bug. And sadly, the family physician, our colleagues in ER, did not recognize what was going on. They didn't put that pattern together. Her predominant complaint was the fact that the chickenpox vesicles, the blisters, if you like, had become blue and discolored, and it was very tender and painful. That was a complaint. And sadly, they said, you know, this is all very much uh, chickenpox, and they reassured the family and sent her home. And She didn't do well. They kept bringing ER, and finally they came in again about 36 hours later in what we call multi-system failure. Every part of her body had started failing. And, of course, we then transferred her to the intensive care unit where she was to spend seven weeks. And by the grace of God, Isabel went home. But the parents, very early on, rather than being understandably, you know, most parents in this situation, in my experience, would understandably be angry and sometimes litigious and say, you know, had my child been diagnosed in the first instance, had she been admitted and got, you know, a dose of third-generation cephalosporin, for example, she might not have spent seven weeks on intensive care. She might not have cost, you know, the hundreds and thousands of dollars that her health costs. But these parents, Jason and Charlotte Maud, rather than going down the legal route, actually said to me, outside Isabel's cubicle, so here she is, Larry, you can imagine it. She's on a ventilator. She's on uh, drugs to keep up her blood pressure. She's on a, on a hemofiltration machine because her kidneys had stopped functioning. 
So she's surrounded by all these machines, and these parents just said to me, Joseph, why don't we do something about this? The father, he's now my co-founder and business partner. The father said to me, Jason said, you know, I work in the city. I work in finance. We use a lot of decision support. As knowledge workers in finance, we use decision support. We use knowledge management. We use knowledge mobilization. And it struck us. It struck him that hard as we doctors and nurses on the intensive care unit worked, as diligent as we were, when it came to our cognitive decisions, we made very little, if any, use of decision support, knowledge management. Patient comes to you with fever, rash, thrombocytopenia, coagulopathy. What am I dealing with here? We tend to rely, Larry, almost exclusively on the data sets that we carry in our mind from our reading and from our experience. So he said, you know, why don't we work together? Why don't we do something about this? We weren't sure whether Isabel, the child, would go home at that stage. But as I said, seven weeks later, she went home. And uh, she's now nine years old. And, and a major shareholder. <laughs> she's, not, she's not her shareholder. But the father and I both gave up our jobs. Uh, the father gave up his job in the city. And uh, in 2005, I gave up my job on the intensive care unit. And now we started building the system, the Isabel system in 1999, and we both now work on promoting the system and trying to make a difference to patient safety, quality of care, via the very, very important stage of getting the diagnosis right. You bring up this term that I don't know that a lot of doctors are familiar with, the diagnosis decision support system. Is that something you created, or is that something that existed that just was not paid attention to? Decision support, Larry, is not new. Decision support systems are systems that support our decisions. When you get an ECG, some clever ECG machines have for years now been telling, giving us the report. What is the PR interval? What is the ST segment like? So that's decision support. It helps you read, interpret an ECG. But you can always override it and ignore it. Absolutely. It's like the GPS system. I use this analogy when I lecture and speak about diagnosis error and diagnosis decision support. I tell our colleagues, it's like the GPS system. You know, if you're familiar with, in your own hometown and when you're driving home from work, you're not going to need decision support. If you know it's a urinary tract infection, if you, if you know it's otitis media, you don't need it. But suppose you're in a strange place and you're not familiar. Suppose you're not sure, could this really be a UTR? Could this be pyelonephritis? Is this otitis media or is this a cerebral abscess? When you have doubt, when you're not sure, that's where decision support systems, that's when your GPS can help you. You know, when I was in med school, I learned how to create a differential diagnosis, and we, we had an acronym. You probably had a different acronym. Ours was INDICIN. I was for infection. N was for neoplasm. D was for drug-related. O was uh, occupational. C was college and vascular. I was, who knows, idiopathic. And N, uh, I can't even remember. So I can see how you could use a system. That acronym, that mnemonic, if you like, was decision support for you. And what technology has now allowed us to do, the Isabel system is a web-based system. And essentially, it uses very clever software. It uses what's called NLP, Statistical Natural Language Processing, what's also referred to as semantic indexing, to search instantly through the pages of hundreds and thousands of textbooks in the first instance. If you say, for example, I've got a patient with abdominal pain, hematuria, and arthritis, in a female who's 30 to 40 and who is not pregnant. Instantly, just typing in the natural language, and that's the big advance, the ability to handle natural language. That, Larry, is the language in which you and I speak and the patients complain of. The textbooks are written in natural language, free text. So you enter in free text, very much like Google. You enter in a free text, you hit a button, and we give you, the physician, the nurse practitioner, the physician assistant, 
at the point of care, we give you a list of likely diagnoses for you as the expert. So these systems are not experts. You know, these are not sort of Oracle, Yoda, Jedi Master-like systems. Not at all. On the contrary, the value of these systems, Larry, is predicated by the data that you put in. If, if you haven't examined your patient thoroughly, you've picked up the fact that there's fever and anemia, but you haven't you know, felt the abdomen and picked up the fact that there's the tip of the spleen, you can't enter in splenomegaly. And therefore, you won't get infective endocarditis coming out. You've just put in fever and anemia, you'll probably get leukemia. So like with any other data processor, like a calculator, it's predicated by the data that you enter. Garbage in, garbage out. Absolutely. Joseph Brito, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Larry. We have been discussing making diagnosis with decision support in pediatric critical care. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment on children's health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.